0: This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto.
1: Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network and I am Ben Schiller I'm the features editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is Danny Nelson. Hi Danny Nelson. Hello to Danny Nelson indeed. You are indeed Danny Nelson. Can you confirm that very fact?
2: Uh, I think so. I don't know. I haven't gotten my orbs I'm sorry, I haven't gotten my retina scanned yet by the orb coin people. So who knows if I really am who I say I am. So you just have to take my word for it.
1: That's true. I mean, uh, what would we do without WorldCoin as to prove our identity? Uh, We have no idea who anyone is.
0: If we couldn't prove it, Danny could either be in Binance court or he could be doing some NHL practice, you know? Too many Danny Nelsons out there.
2: (laughs) I abide by the laws of quantum mechanics and I am in all places at once.
1: That slightly higher sounding voice was the voice of Cam Thompson. Do you exist, Cam Thompson?
0: I don't know. Could just be a glitch in the crypto simulation, but as far as I know, I am here ready to talk about some crazy crypto news that's happened in the past week. So
1: So none of us can prove we exist, but we are here to talk about uh, crypto news and everything that is included in that innocuous sounding phrase. So Danny, um, the latest news today is about Curve, which is a uh, decentralized finance protocol and it's in some hot water. Do you want to explain about that?
2: Yes, it is. Now, Curve is one of the let's just say big four, big five, blue chip DeFi protocols like Compound and MakerDAO, Aave, Uniswap. One of those places where everyone goes to to make their trades on the Ethereum network because they just believe, well, this is built stronger, this is built better. It's not prone to the hacks that we see on smaller DeFi protocols. Well, over the weekend, that presumption collapsed. A zero day in how the smart contracts of these different pools was set up was exploited. And a hacker or hackers, we're not sure which, got away with maybe $70 million in various cryptocurrencies by draining the pools. Now, how the hack itself happened, that's a little techie, but the most important thing to remember here is that everyone's assumptions of safety fell apart because th- these pools had one little vulnerability. And they were exploitable. So it just is another moment where you have to look at DeFi and think, how are these systems set up? Who am I placing my trust in? Because even if we're trusting that these are trustless systems, which is to say no one person is controlling them, well, we believe that they're going to be safe because we trusted that the auditors did a good job, that we trusted that these parties have vetted the code, and that hasn't been the case
1: here. So some of this hacking was apparently down to MEV, which is a very controversial front-running activity on Ethereum. Do you want to explain some of that controversy,
2: Danny? So I'm not entirely, I'm not an expert on on MEV, but in this case, there are actually two ways that MEV has worked. Well, for starters, what MEV is, it basically, you know what, I can't, I'm not good enough. I can't even attempts to describe how MEV works, but it's monkeying around
1: with the uh, unfinalized transactions in the, in the mempool. Yeah,
2: you know, the, the, with MEV, these bots can understand the transactions that are going to occur, the ones that are in the mempool, and they can execute them before those transactions have occurred. So let's say an attacker is attempting to drain a pool. Well, that takes a transaction and that transaction is in the mempool before it is executed. So in theory, and in practice here, MEV bots saw that and front ran and withdrew some of the money before the attackers were able to. So some of that money is now just stuck with the MEVs. In some cases, though, some of these people who are running these bots have actually returned some of the money. They realized that their bots possibly did an unintentional public service. And I think there was one account, coffeebabe.eth that has returned $7 million. So there's an upside and a downside to always getting front run by the bots.
1: Right. Taking a look out here, I mean, uh, everyone says that DeFi is a feature of finance, uh, but these protocols keep on being hacked. I mean, uh, what is the feature here?
2: I. You know, if I uh, among many things, if I knew the answer to that, I would not be a journalist. But one outcome of this occurrence, in my opinion, should be that everyone takes a step back, thinks how are we evaluating these systems? And what do we need to change about that? Because you really can't have a situation where one of the big protocols that everyone trusts is falling victim to what really is a simple hack that should have been stopped.
0: So Danny, as you just mentioned, Curve is one of the more popular, more trusted DeFi protocols out there. And as regulation is coming into the crypto space, you know, eventually it'll get to the DeFi space, but DeFi is kind of stayed away from that. But in this case, you know, how do you think events like this hack within curve as well as other, you know, malicious attacks on DeFi protocols, how do you think that might play into a future of trying to regulate these kinds of protocols and services?
2: Well, what I think is most important to remember is that this is a failure of self-regulation. These entities the people running them, because there are people who are more influential in contributing to the Coinbase and executing and adding and whatever it is. The the people who have some oversight, they need to be trusted to be doing a good job. And the code needs to be very carefully vetted, and that's not happening here. So I don't think the answer is we need to give this to the SEC or some other federal entity to oversee it. There needs to be, I think, some sort of standard setting in the industry where you have a true team of auditors that not are just some company of people in their basement, but actual professionals people could trust when they look at and say, this thing is good. And they're not just saying it because you paid them to say it.
0: But when looking at who's going to do that, a lot of times these regulatory agencies will try to take that responsibility upon themselves. Obviously, they might not be able to understand the code or what MEV even is, or how so many of these intricacies operate. So who do you think is best fit to kind of establish this standard among DeFi? I don't know, it's a big question.
2: (laughs) I I have no idea, right? I don't know. I, I assume maybe some comp sci academics, to be quite honest. Definitely not AI, though. I think some people are saying that AI should be used to audit smart contracts. Sure, maybe if you want to get a first pass take, on whether or not your code sucks maybe ask the ai but you really need someone to dig in to, who knows what they're doing in order to catch these before they become a problem
1: so dan kuhn uh, in an op-ed today was speculating that this hack might lead to some changes in how DeFi is done one of those would be taking some of the crypto trading off chain so apparently the new version of uniswap which is a, a key protocol maker Uniswap X is using something called best execution, which takes some of the transactions, as I say, off-chain. So
2: would that have helped in this case, Danny? Well, I mean, if trading is happening off-chain, it basically means that the money is in a spot, and it doesn't leave that spot, but whoever's ownership over it changes, basically. I don't know if it would change the outcome here. It depends how that setup is in the first place, right? If the money is, if the crypto is in a vault somewhere, and it's not leaving the vault, well, ultimately, at some point, it might leave the vault for whatever reason, and you still have to make sure that the input-output is safe there. So yeah, it probably would protect one attack vector, but I'm not enough of an expert to know for sure whether it would have stopped this specifically.
1: Okay, I think this is a good place to leave this discussion. Uh, one step
2: forward, two steps back, as usual. Much uh, as usual. <laughs> thank you, Danny, for giving some insight there. I-, I will say, though, one final note on this. My favorite meme in all of crypto is the Crypto Hacks calendar, which, without fail, every month we have a different like logo that you add to the month to just to demonstrate. Oh well, this this week Olympus fell. This week, uh, whatever fell. This week, SushiSwap swap got hit. Euler got hit. Well, in the month of July. We had three. We had, I don't even remember the first one, but it was big. We had Conic and we had Curve and the others were pretty big, but Curve takes the cake because Curve is, like Uniswap, one of those big, respected, long-in-the-tooth DeFi protocols. So good job, crypto. Keep it up. You can fill out that bingo card.
1: Well, there are a couple of other little hacks this weekend, like with
2: uh, Pendle, right? You know, th- there are so many, I can't even keep on, on top of all of them. There actually were a lot of hacks that were executed in the same way that this hack was because it wasn't an issue specifically with the way that the curve pool was set up. It was an issue with the the underlying coding language. And that issue, because it was within the language, had populated across lots of different smart contracts that all were copying each other. So the hack against curve, you can lump it in with the hack of a lot of other things, including Alchemix and maybe even Pendle because they follow the same strategy.
1: All right, good. So let's actually move on now. Thank you, Danny. We're going to delve deeper into the world of unscrupulous machinations now. And this is news that the US Securities and Exchange Commission, otherwise known as the SEC, uh, is continuing with its war on crypto. Sorry, not war on crypto, with its uh, uh, very rational uh, enforcement actions against uh, bad players in the crypto economy. This Good catch. It, thank you. And this one comes against a rather controversial figure um, known as Richard Hart, the person behind Hex, and uh, more recently Pulse Chain, which was a much Ballyhooed project that was said to have raised a staggering $1 billion in funding uh, beginning in 2019, and the SEC has said that uh, fundraising was illegal and it has uh, started a big lawsuit against uh, Richard Hart, who is a controversial figure known for his flamboyant purchases of uh, very luxury automobiles, uh, amongst other things. So um, are we surprised by this, guys? Uh, It doesn't seem particularly surprising that someone like Richard Hart would come into the crosshairs of the SEC.
0: I mean, something funny that I just want to point out from the lawsuit Um, Hart said that Hex was built to be the highest appreciating asset that has ever existed in the history of man. So wow, that is quite a claim. I mean, if you look at that, you already know, you know, someone's saying this in crypto, you know, it's not going to be the highest appreciating asset, you know, that there might be, you know, something a little bit darker wrapped up within that claim. If someone's going to that length to say that an asset can do such but really, I'm not surprised. I don't know. I think that, of course, in this time when the SEC is cracking down over securities, it's not surprising to me that Hex would fall victim to that.
1: Yeah, he, uh, he said back in, uh, well, according to the lawsuit against him from the SEC, he said, uh, it says, on December 2, 2019, during a seven-hour live stream on YouTube, I cannot imagine a seven-hour live stream with uh, Richard Hart, Before the Hex offering, he said, uh, this is Hart, Hex was built to outperform Ethereum and Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrencies. Uh, When you think about how big those cryptocurrencies are and were, um, that's quite a claim uh, as as well, isn't it?
2: Danny, uh, any comment on this? You know, I'm not too familiar with the story of of Richard Hart and Hex, but I'm sure that he's a genuine figure who really is well-meaning really was just trying to uh, do the most he could to help everyone's assets appreciate based on the efforts of others, namely himself.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sure he was looking out for everyone uh, out there and his investors uh, is a really good chap. So um, good luck with the lawsuit, uh, Richard, and uh, we'll check in with you um, in a few weeks. Just one side note, guys, and I don't know how much public knowledge this is, but our very own uh, David Morris, who's the chief columnist here at Coindesk, wrote a article when Pulse Chain came out, and it was titled, The Pulse Chain Sideshow Tent is Collapsing. And it was extremely rude about Richard Hart, extremely rude about Pulse Chain, I think deservedly so. A quote from David's article, one thing I've definitely seen too much of is Richard Hart's backside. His specific brand of carnival barker shtick centers around four things. Tracksuits, gold chains, cars, and twerking. He has made vulgar displays of his poor taste and apparently vast wealth, uh, wealth largely harvested from hex and pulse investors. The defining characteristic of his online persona. Uh, David was basically saying that um, you know the more trashy we think he is, the more trashy Richard Hart gets because he thinks it benefits him. Uh, anyway, so um, after David Morris uh, wrote this very fair column. We received a large package uh, here at CoinDesk from an anonymous backer of Pulse Chain. and it was quite clear to the poor office manager here at CoinDesk that this package contained a large amount of human excrement, and uh, that it was directed at the aforementioned uh, David Morris. And I, I think this is a good example of impact journalism. Some articles don't do anything out there in, in the universe; uh, nobody reacts. But this is a good case of somebody reacting and going to the very lengthy effort to go to a post office, deliver a big poo-poo in a package there, and send it all the way to Coinders such that we would open it up and see the contents. Congratulations to that, backer, and uh, thanks very much for your uh, thoughtful gift.
2: You know, as a journalist, I have to... Th- Am I failing? Because I've never pissed someone off so much that they sent me a bag of shit. I agree. Um, and I, I, this is something... Like, I don't want the excrement. But the gesture means a lot and I'm I'm a little jealous. I really it does mean
0: a lot. It means someone was they were so angry they went out of their way to package up literal feces and pay money to send it to the CoinDesk office. I mean, that is an effort.
2: I do wonder if it was through the postal service or FedEx or UPS. Like were they tracking this or I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure about that.
1: But uh, I don't know. I do think, you know, the currency of uh, success in journalism is to get clicks and eyeballs on your articles, but I think getting a big poo-poo in the mail, oh, surely, God. is uh, way above that. So, um, And now in
2: shitcoin news.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: No more talking about poop, except sort of talking about something else that has gotten a lot of poop-like sentiments, Elon Musk's Twitter rebrand to X. however. Among this rebrand and this notion of making X a payments app, there is another Web3 native app that is on the rise, and it's called Suku Wallet. Essentially, what it allows users to do is send crypto to each other through direct messages, you know, immediately sending it through essentially just Twitter handles. It allows you to log on to this wallet with your Twitter handle and choose the type of crypto you want to send. And from there, you can send it to people via Twitter. You can also send NFTs, and one of the ways that they kicked off this wallet was by doing a NFT mint with Polygon. And in order to mint this NFT, all you had to do was just tag the Suku account, tag Polygon, and then post a tweet and it immediately minted, it immediately went to your Suku wallet that you could log into through Twitter. So, I'm curious what you guys think, you know. Does this seem like a viable challenge to Elon Musk's plans to make Twitter this payments app and Some of the conversation around how X might integrate crypto?
1: I mean, what problem is this really solving? I mean, isn't it quite easy to send crypto to another person already?
0: Well, the problem that it's solving is that you don't have to connect a wallet. You don't have to go through KYC, AML. All you do is you just log in with your Twitter handle and boom, you have a wallet. And whatever step it took you to get that Twitter account in the first place, that's really the biggest barrier to entry. Once you have your Twitter, You're set. So, the Suku CEO, Jonathan Lapchick, I spoke with him last week. He specifically said that a lot of people, when they are interacting with crypto products, connecting a wallet is the point where they're gone. They are gone. They will not connect their wallet if they don't know what that is or how it works. And it's really more of a tool to help onboard people. So, it's easy to send crypto if you already have a wallet and you already know how that works, but getting more people to engage with it, especially on a social media platform. It helps with the, that barrier to entry, just being able to use your Twitter login, like you might use a Google or Facebook login for other platforms.
1: Okay, makes sense. Have you used it so far?
0: I have not used it myself, but I think it'll be really cool to use. I mean, if I have an NFT that I want to send to someone, you know, maybe I'll, I might gift my next NFT with that. Because when I gifted my dad an NFT for Christmas, which I talked about on this podcast a few months ago was not easy to send him the NFT on his wallet, and it was kind of hard for him to figure out. So I might do it over Twitter, you know? He he uses it.
2: So I have to say, the name Suku and Jonathan Lapchick, they ring a bell for me. They ring a bell back from my earliest days at Coindesk. This is, I'm reading an article, October 31, 2019. I was a wee baby intern at Coindesk, and I wrote the story, New blockchain-based system will track steers from hoof to plate. And it was about how this blockchain supply chain startup uh, was using the chain to trace food in the supply chain. And that company was Suku, and it is the same Suku. And so now I'm just struggling to understand how it we got from supply chain tracing to, as far as I can tell from the limited amount I was paying attention while I was searching for this. Twitter payments. Like, what kind of rebrand has happened here, Jonathan? I don't know. I'm, I'm not hating on the thing. I'm sure it works lovely. But I remember trying to set up this Thanksgiving meal in 2019, where Coindesk would get every piece of the meal from like some blockchain supply tracing thing. So we'd get some blockchain turkey, some blockchain lettuce, and we'd have a big supply chain tracing Thanksgiving. How have we gotten from that world to this one?
0: You know, this isn't the first total rebrand I've witnessed a lot of companies do. I think the bear market has brought along some challenges and people seeing new avenues in which they can use their technology to solve a problem. So obviously, supply chain is a large part of why people like to use blockchains in the first place. But perhaps Suku was better suited to support Twitter payments. I don't know. That's fascinating, though.
2: It's just such a strong pivot, like (laughs) such a complete blast from the past i haven't thought about this company in four years and now they're doing twitter or they're doing x rather right it's, it's x now do we have to call it x oh,
0: i guess so now that the mobile app is literally a giant x i guess we have to call it that well
1: the good thing is guys that we're not stuck being a crypto journalists forever maybe we can make a, a pivot too from being on this podcast to doing something more useful it's like supply chain blockchain
0: yeah yeah, well, it's, it's yeah I metaverse think so. fashion
2: no, that's more useless somehow.
0: i could We could use the blockchain joke. <laughs> to trace
2: the metaverse fashion from one dumpster to the next. Well, the Buddhists say we live
1: uh, nine lives or 10 lives or 15 lives. So uh, we've all got a uh, second chapter. So that's, that's good. Thank you very much, Cam. And uh, I think that's the end of the show.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another week of crazy news. In the meantime, if you like Carpe Consensus, if you like listening to us, please leave us a review. You can do that on Spotify podcasts. And tell us what you like us talking about or if you have any questions, what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of.
2: And also, our mailing address is as follows. Uh,
0: <laughs> now, Dan- Danny, you're asking for it. I'm nervous. Do you, I, yeah, we're going to uh, redact that, but you can find it somewhere. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Ben. Catch you guys next week.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.